Section 1 of Lives of the Presidents of the United States in Words of One Syllable. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Lives of the Presidents of the United States in Words of One Syllable by Helen W. Pearson. Chapter 1. George Washington, 1789 to 1797. In Virginia, near the banks of the stream we call the Potomac, there is a spot known as Bridges Creek. It is so small a place that you cannot call it a town, yet it is dear to the hearts of Americans. For here, on the 22nd of February, 1732, George Washington was born. A few fig trees are still seen, and here and there a wild rose peeps out of the weeds to show you that once on a time a home was there. A few loose bricks and bits of lime still lie on the ground where the old farmhouse once stood. In 1815, a small stone slab was put there to mark the spot. The coat of arms of the Washingtons was a white shield with two red bars on it, and on top were three stars, so that the whole was like the stars and stripes, in a way. When George was three years old, the Washingtons left this home and went to live in a low red house on a hill near Fredericksburg. The tale of the way in which George cut the fruit trees has been told all through the years to the small folks of this land, to show his love of truth. He'd been brought up to tell the truth, and to do what was right at all times. One who was near kin to him tells the tale. One fine day, she said, when George was five years old, his pa took us both by the hand and bade us come with him to look at the fruit trees. The whole earth was strewn with the fruit, but there was one tree that had not borne in the past and was a choice kind. This was found to be cut. George hung back. Who has done this? said Mr. Washington in a rage, for the bark of the tree had been cut in such a way that one could not hope for fruit for years. The small boy came forth in a brave way. I did it, Pa. I cannot tell a lie. I cut it, he said. Mr. Washington was so struck by the show of truth on the part of his son that his rage left him, and he felt more proud than he had been of his boy. George, from the time he was quite a small lad, kept a book in which he wrote down all the things that took place in his life. When George was scarce a man, in years he took charge of some troops sent out to save his state from the bands of fierce Indians and the hosts of French who sought to steal more land. One fourth of all the state troops were put in his charge, and for his work in this line he got a small pay that in our day would scarce be thought what a strong man could live on. He did a good deal of hard work to train his men in the right way for the fight. He had just got his men so that they could well cope with the foe, when word came from the head of the state that bade him start on a new task. It had been heard that the French and Indians had gone to work to build forts in a long line on the Ohio to find out if this was so. Washington was sent to the front with a note to the chief man of the French troops. Though it was cold and bleak, young Washington did not shrink at the task set for him. 
He well knew at the time that most of his way would lead through dark woods by bad roads for miles and miles, but he did not flinch. Washington had four men with him when he made the start, a guide to show him the way and one who knew how to speak French, with two men to guard the goods and to do all the odd kinds of work there might be on hand. A hard time they had of it at first, as their way led through swamp and mire, at last they found the fort of which they were in search. Here, Washington had a long talk with the chief of the French troops, who was a man who had been long in wars. Though kind, he was very firm when his rights were at stake. George did not gain much by this trip, as he was told that the French had all the land round neath their thumbs. They had sent out word to seize all men found at large, who did not prove they were friends. When Washington got the note he was to take back, he made his way, with his men, home once more. It was more cold than when they had made their start, for the snow and ice lay thick on field and stream, and it was hard to get through it all. At one time they had to ford a stream by means of a raft, and Washington made a slip from the damp logs. If he had not been caught by one of his men, he might have lost his life. The way in which Washington had done his task won him much praise, and the head of his state went so far as to make a note of his act to the King of England. He was at once made a colonel, and two bands of troops were put in his charge to stop the French who sought to seize more land. As George Washington had no gold with him to pay his men, and as the state did not try to help him, it was not strange that in his first fight he did not win the day, though he strove hard and well to turn the tide. The head of the French troops praised George and his men for the brave ways in which they had fought, and his own state at once sent him some gold to pay his troops. It was not long from this time that George took charge of a part of the troops of General Braddock, this was thought at the time to be quite a high post, so you may be sure he was not long in doubt if he should take it. It was in the month of June, 1755, that the troops made their way to Fort Duquesne, where they were to stay. They had scarce been on the road a day ere Washington fell sick, but he kept up like a brave man, and in spite of his friends, would march at the head of his men. Washington knew so well the tricks of the shrewd foe they had to deal with that he wished Braddock to let him take the lead with those men who knew the Indians' ways best, but he would not. Braddock had cause soon to know his course had been wrong, for the woods were thick with Indians who rent the air with their shrieks and war whoops. From rocks and trees they sprang on the troops like wild beasts. Washington had his horse shot, and Braddock got such a wound that there was no hope for his life. They had to flee from the foe, and he died on the way. His last words to Washington, Oh, if I had but done as you said, all might have been well, or at least our loss would not have been so great. He left Washington, a horse that had been with him through the wars, and an old slave whom he had brought up to serve him. When the news of this fight was brought to Governor Dinwiddie, there was great fear of the Indians now that they had shown how strong they were. They knew, too, that if it had not been for Washington, 
their hopes would all be lost. Braddock lost the fight, they said, but Washington was the one who saved the troops. When the heads of the state met, they made a vote to give Washington a large sum to pay, if they could, all he had done for them, and they made him the chief of all the troops in the colonies. His first step was to place his men so that they could stop the Indians when they tried to rob and burn the homes of the land. He did this so well that he got much praise for his work. To aid him in this task, he made all his men dress in the same garb as the Indians. This was a great help to them, as it was light and cheap. On the 17th of January, 1759, Washington was wed to Mrs. Martha Custis, who was as good as she was fair. He spent three months with his wife at their home, which was known as the White House in New Kent, and at the close of that year they kept house at Mount Vernon, his old place. While here, Washington gave much time to the care of his farm, but he still held in view the state of things in our land, and did not lose sight of the great moves of the day in the cares of home life. At this time men felt that the rule of England was a hard yoke to bear, as the tax on goods made here was quite high. Lord North sought to make this tax more than it had been, with not so much as a word to our folk till it was done. It was not strange then that all who were freeborn should feel that this was a great wrong that was thrust on them, and that they would not stand it. They did not mind as long as England was just in her rule, but they did not like to have the king treat them as slaves. So they got into a rage with the sense of their wrongs, and said they would have their rights, which was but just. They tore down the homes of those in their midst who were on the side of the British, and sought to kill those who would force on them the Stamp Act, the tax they had caused to hate. The mob was full of rage, and there was great fear that a war would take place if England did not at once put a stop to the Stamp Act. They still kept up the tax of three pence a pound on tea, and sent three ships here full, but our men one night broke the chests and threw it all in the sea. From that time signs of war were seen, and the first fight took place at Lexington on the Lord's Day between British and American troops, and then the cry went out through the length and breadth of our land, To arms! To arms! In view of this fear of a great war that might soon come, men met at Philadelphia on May 10th, 1775, and Washington was made chief of all our troops. He took full charge of them in the latter part of June in the same year near Boston. The British had thrown up earthworks on the hills on all sides, so that help would be cut off from the town, and the plight of those who had to bear the siege was in truth a sad one. As soon as Washington could train his raw troops, he made out to get rid of the foe, and one morn the British got quite a shock when they saw that a new line of earthworks had been thrown up by him and his men in the night, and that he was in the best place too. This they saw with fear, and sent troops by night to drive off our men, but a storm was in their way, so they could not do much harm. When the 
British saw that they could not force our men to go, they thought it best to leave Boston with their ships, which was done. When our troops went in the town, they found its streets strewn with things the British had left in their haste. All the great guns had spikes in them, so that they were of no use, but Washington was glad to think he had won the day, and much praise was his for the part he had in the work. He had a fear that the British troops might be on their way to New York, so he sent part of his men to aid those there in case they should have to fight for their homes. But instead of that, the British ships made sail for Halifax, from whence their troops took all the line of forts in Canada and made the land theirs. It was at this time that Richard Henry Lee of Virginia made a move in Congress that our land should rise up and say it would be free from British rule, and for this was drawn up the Declaration of Independence, and the chief men of the day put their names to it, and Congress, on the 4th of July, 1776, put it in force. When Washington got this, he read it in a loud voice to all his troops, and its strong words did much to raise their hopes. For some time they had feared that they could not stand or gain their rights with such a foe as England, but they took heart from this time. Lord Howe, the English governor, tried to get Washington to draw off his men and sent to him word that if he would stop the war, the king would not be hard on him for the part he took in it. But Washington said, No, I fight for a just cause and I will not give it up. The British then went in for war and had all their troops land at Long Island. They had three times more men than Washington and a host of large guns while he had few. Washington stood on a hill nearby and through his field glass saw them land. He felt great fear in his heart as he made account of the hordes of the foe. He cried out as he thought of his own troops, My God, what brave men must I this day lose? From that time it would seem that all went wrong for him. Our ranks were mown down and great loss of life took place as they sought to flee from the foe. It was not long from this time that the dread news came to Washington that General Lee, who had been sent with a body of troops to guard Philadelphia, was in the hands of the foe. This was the dark hour of the fight, and Washington's brave heart was sick with fear. He still tried to show a brave front, and did not let his men know how sad was his heart. The British now took up their stand at Trenton, and Washington, who by this time had got more troops to his aid, thought he would cross the Delaware, though it was full of ice, and come on them, when they did not know it. At four, on the dawn of Christmas Day, he and his troops made their way through the ice in the stream in boats. The cold was great, and the men in their poor clothes felt it a great deal, but still they would not back out, and kept on their way with brave hearts. That day our troops put the foe to rout and took a great deal of spoils in the way of arms and large guns, for which they stood in great need. Great was the joy through the land when this news was known. 
when the new year came fresh hope sprang up in all hearts for washington won the fights at bednington still water and saratoga and in october of seventeen seventy seven all the british troops in charge of general burgoyne gave up their arms to general gates he let them go home when he had their pledge that they would not take up arms in our war in the years to come that year when the cold set in washington made a camp with his men in valley forge and a hard time they had of it there food was scarce and not a man in all his ranks had a good pair of shoes on his feet or a whole suit of clothes to his back some had no shoes at all and when they went round their feet left stains of blood on the snow yet they all kept their hopes up and still had faith in washington in the spring the camp in this drear place broke up and all were glad to leave it our troops met the foe once more at monmouth courthouse and through the fault of general lee who had not done as washington bade him we lost the battle in this fight the marquis de lafayette a young man from france who had come to our land to fight for our cause which he knew to be just got much praise for the brave stand he made in the spring of seventeen seventy nine sir henry clinton now the head of the british troops tried to get in his hands the posts and forts on the line of the hudson he made out to take two when washington came up in time to cut him off from the rest one of these forts which was known as stony point was won at the end of a long fight stores that were worth a small mint of gold fell into our hands benedict arnold had been put in charge of the fort at west point and some posts on the line that the british wished to get he made up his mind to give them up to the foe at a price with this thought in view he soon made a deal with the chief of the foe to give up the posts and forts for a large sum of gold the note to clinton in which he made his wish known was sent by a young spy major andre of the british troops on the way back to his fort andre met three men in the dress of our troops and was made to halt they found the lines from arnold in his boots and brought him to the camp of our troops he was tried and hung as a spy washington felt sad that he must cut this young man off in the prime of his life yet he knew he must do it or our ranks would soon be run down by such men but benedict arnold had by this time made his way in great haste to a ship and set sail for england for he was in fear of his life his name is one that all hear with scorn as a wretch he would have sold his land to the hands of the foe the land to which he fled gave him a home but no friends let us not speak of him in the same breath as those brave men who fought and bled that we might live in the land of the free with the help of the troops of brave french who had been sent to us through lafayette october nineteenth seventeen eighty one the british troops in charge of cornwallis gave up their arms to washington at yorktown this was a great stroke of luck that no one could have thought would take place it was not long from this time that news was brought to washington that it was the wish of our folk that he should take on him the name and crown of a king 
this might well tempt one fond of pomp and state, but Washington was not that kind of a man. He spoke his mind with such strong words that they did not press a crown on him. In March of 1783 came the news of peace through the land, which Washington read with joy to his troops. Yet he shed tears at the thought that they must soon leave him. Not long from that time, Washington gave up the charge of his troops and said, Goodbye to those who were his aides in the war. I may not come to each of you and take my leave, he said with tears in his eyes, but I shall be glad if you each will come to me and let me grasp you by the hand. Washington now had a wish to go back to his home at Mount Vernon, where he could rest from the toils and cares of war. He knew that there was no fear of the British, and that our land, for the time at least, was in peace. At Mount Vernon, he gave his time up, for the most part, to take care of his farm. He rose at the break of day, as a rule, and rode through the fields. He wrote a great deal each day to his friends, and did much hard work on his place, which he did not find was in so good a state since the war. When our men met in Philadelphia in May 1787 to fix the laws of the land, Washington met with them, and the laws then fixed on and put in force are much the same as those we use today. Then Washington was at once thought of as the right man for president. You know the way we choose a president in this land is by votes. All men do not think the same way or hold the same views. So there have been at all times two or more bands of men who choose whom they would have for president and vice president. The side that gets the most votes wins the day, of course. In our day, these two bands of men are known as Democrats and Republicans. In years past, the last were known by the name of Whigs at one time. Washington did not wish, at his age, near threescore, to take a place of such great care and trust, but he was led to do so at last. On his way to take this high place, he was hailed with joy by all. The bells rang out glad peals from the church spires of the towns through which he passed, and young girls clad in white strewed his path with sweet buds and bloom, and wreaths were hung, and flags flung out to the breeze, and the cries of crowds rent the air, while President Washington lived in a plain way, for pomp and show were not to his taste. He was prompt in his ways, and did all things by rule. He was kind to those who served him, but strict, and would not let them slight their work. And one of his clerks who came late each day gave us a cause more than once that his watch was slow. He said to him, Well, you must get a new watch, or I will get a new clerk. The Indians once more stirred up war, and Washington sent out a small force to bring them to terms. He served two terms, but would not take a third. Washington spent the last years of his life in peace at home. America could ask no more from his hands. His work was done. His arm had been the one to save her in the dark hours that came ere the dawn that made us free. And now he must have rest. On the twelfth day of December 1799, he went out to take a ride. At noon the snow fell and the rain but he went his rounds just the same in spite of it. He had felt ere he went on this ride that his throat was sore, and had no doubt he caught more cold as he made his rounds through the storm. He had to take to his bed, and it was with great pain that he could breathe. 
All known cures were tried, but in vain. The end was near. At ten in the night, they gave up all hope, and his wife was brought to the couch where the brave man lay in pain. He tried to speak once or twice, but did not have strength. At length he said, in a low voice that was full of hope for the life to come, "'Tis well, tis well. These were his last words. What a wail went up from far and near when the sad news was known. More than one strong man cried like a child. The old world and the new heard of his death with grief. They felt that a great man was lost to the world when that brave heart had ceased to beat. His name is held dear to this day in the hearts of all who live in the land he loved. His birthday has been kept each year since he died, and throngs have gone to look at his tomb at Mount Vernon, and felt it to be a boon to stand by the spot where the great man lies. As we have said, Washington did not think it wise to serve for a third term. There is no doubt that this course led Jefferson and the rest who came after him to feel that it was best to walk in his steps and serve but for eight years, so that now we have grown to look on two terms as all that a president should hope for at the hands of his friends. When General Grant, at the close of the war in which he had won so much fame, was placed at the head of the land, he served two terms. There was some talk of a third. His friends felt that they could not do too much to show their love and pride in the man who had led our troops so well and put an end to the sad war. But there was a cry raised by the press that though it was not down in the law of the land, yet it was a fixed fact that no one had ruled for more than eight years, and no one should hope to do so. So the friends of Grant feared to bring his name out, though they were in such force they might have won the day. There were some well-known names kept back till it was seen that Grant would not be named. Garfield's was one, and it was at last voted on and won the first place. End of section one, read by Inkel.